you all. Well, thank you all for coming out. Part of what I do is teach how to apply permaculture in the urban landscape. And part of what I'll be presenting to you tonight is a lot of information that I've accumulated over the last 20 years as an educator and eight years of living off the grid and building a 1,600 square foot straw bale house, creating gravity-fed water systems and doing direct market to restaurants. Permaculture is a way of thinking. It's a way of seeing. And what I'm gonna to present to you tonight is a way of seeing ourselves as biological organisms who are deeply rooted in the life matrix of planet Earth. And by that I mean, what does it mean to begin to live in ways that intentionally participate with evolution? What is our new cosmology? What is our new story? How do we take the latest insights of physics, which is the root of the tree? of geology, which is the trunk of the tree, of chemistry, which is still part of the trunk of the tree, into biology, which are some of the branches of the tree, into anthropology, which we're getting into smaller dendritic sub-branches, into sociology, which is even softer science, and psychology. And to what degree can we inferentially, deductively create a storyline that integrates the salient insights of all these different disciplines. That's the mistake of the way in which education is done in this culture. It doesn't bother to integrate the insights of the different disciplines. It tends to segregate them into an academic narcissism. So I'm not presenting science as some sort of like hallowed holy grail, but it is certainly the new religion of this culture. And if we want to figure out how to frame a new direction for our society, I think it behooves us to know some of the foundational, fundamental, scientific understandings that back us up. According to astrophysicists, the oldest stars and the age of our universe is about 14 and a half billion years old. The galaxy is something that there are many of, as we know, in the universe, and we are in an outer arm of the Milky Way galaxy, which is one of many galaxies. I like to say we are spinning with the Earth, spiraling with the galaxy, and expanding with the universe. My point here is to say this is a very dynamic system. It is something that has been around for 14 and a half billion years. So this is an ancient universe. We have a huge inheritance. I like to say that we are the biosphere and how we behave now really determines the future. Everything on Earth that's larger than hydrogen and helium, if you looked at that table of elements and your eyes didn't blur over in your chemistry class and you had to answer from a physics perspective, where did everything on the planet, according to modern physics, that's larger than hydrogen and helium, where did it come from? It had to come from the center of a star because the only place where you get physics that cause elements to compress and form larger elements is in the solar nexus of a nuclear fusion furnace. And the only place that exists in the universe is in stars. And so that's why people have said before in songs from the late 60s that we are stardust, because that is actually exactly what modern physics is saying. And it becomes very important when we start to think in terms of what is our inheritance? What are we made up of? What sort of innate, inherent cosmic energy resides in the very fabric of our being? You 
hold wisdom that predates this planet itself. Because everything in your physical body, everything on planet Earth that is larger than hydrogen and helium had to come from a center of a star in another solar system before this planet ever came into existence according to modern physics. And what it took to make uranium-235 is a particularly huge star, like a neutron star or a quasar, which are the things that are at the edge of what we can see with the Hubble telescope. And remember, science's understanding of the world is limited by the technologies that it uses to understand the world. Therefore, we want to recognize what Marshall McLuhan said about technology, which is that a technology is useful insofar as we recognize its limitations. Let's recognize the limitations of language. Let's recognize the limitations of mathematics. Let's recognize that they are tools. They do not apprehend the fundamental nature of reality, but they're a good guess, right? They see a little pie slice, just like our senses see a little pie slice, right? Our eyes see Roy G. Biv, but we don't see ultraviolet. We don't see infrared, but bees see ultraviolet. Snakes see infrared. So let's think about our physiology. Let's think about what's going on in this solar system. The Earth is about 92 million miles from the sun. The sun is the biggest act going on on planet Earth. If you want to understand why the climate changes on the Earth, you need to understand the sun. The sun is what's driving the entire system. The sun is 90% of the mass of our solar system. All the rest of the mass that's settled into the planets out of that cloud of stellar dust from previous explosions of suns settled into the Terran planets, right? Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, and then we have the Jovian giants like Jupiter, Saturn, Neptune, Uranus, Pluto, right? That's only 10% of all the mass. 90% of the mass is in this nuclear furnace, which has increased in its intensity by 30% over its lifespan. The sun has gotten 30% hotter in the last four and a half billion years. So the Earth is about 24,901 miles in circumference. It has a core that's spinning faster than the outer surface of the planet and is a thermonuclear furnace at the center of the planet. The center of the Earth is made up of uranium, nickel, cadmium, thorium, and iron and it's burning at about 7,000 degrees Kelvin. And it's why this planet has a live geology in contrast to Mars, which does not, which is part of why Mars froze up tectonically and does not have water at its surface. One of the key things to planet Earth is the fact that we have a highly radioactive nuclear core and that this is causing an EMF field that far expands the surface of the planet in the atmosphere. And the EMF field of the Earth, the electromagnetic field that's generated by the spinning of this core, which we have both a liquid core and a solid core. And when the liquid core and the solid core interact with each other, it creates what's called a dynamo effect. It's the same thing that happens in the alternator in your car, which is when you have one type of metal like iron and you spin it in a bundle of another type of metal like copper, it creates an electrical field. This is exactly what is happening with the Earth on a large scale. 
The Earth has different metals in its crust and different metals in its outer core than it does in this liquid solid core that is burning at 7,000 degrees Kelvin. And that is what is creating this electromagnetic field that far extends out past the surface of the Earth. Aurora Borealis, the Northern Lights. The Northern Lights are a result of this EMF field interacting with the solar plasma that's constantly pouring over the Earth that if it weren't for the biosphere would be frying us. Because our experience of life on Earth really is something that is being provided by the way in which, and this is what scientists like James Lovelock, Lynn Margulis, and Dorian Sagan have been talking about, which is how does the Earth work as a meta-organism? If we think of the Earth as a biological entity, and we ask ourselves, how does it work? What is it doing? What these physicists and these biologists have been starting to refer to the Earth as is a superorganism that they call Gaia. And the Gaia theory is the idea that Earth is a self-regulating organism. And it has been used throughout physics to determine whether or not planets that we're seeing through the Hubble telescope are likely to be supporting life by looking at significant color signatures that have been picked out to show that in fact you can tell when there's life on a planet if you are seeing a particular wavelength of color. And this is part of what new biology and what Gaia is working on is an understanding of how does this planet work as a meta-organism. And what Gaia theory is saying is that in fact what physics and what biology are discovering is that life has begotten the circumstances that benefit life. In other words, what life has been doing is making life good for life. And it's been doing that for four and a half billion years and it's been doing it very successfully. That's why I like to say I'm banking on biology and ecology, not technology. Because if you think about what's been making it possible for us to have a comfortable ride on spaceship Earth, as Buckminster Fuller calls this planet, it is the biosphere and how it's been working, and that's why we're talking about it tonight. Because it's worth your while to understand this as a human being on this meta-organism so that we can understand how to live in ways that synthesize with the larger dynamics of the planet. So we can begin to nest our identity in that meta-level perspective of how does the Earth work? What does it mean if we start to say we are humans from Earth? We do live on a planet that has made it so that we aren't fried by the solar plasma of the sun and then frozen by the nihilistic freezing cold of outer space. Because what we have to remember is this is the only act that we know is working in terms of providing us with a comfortable ride in something that I would argue is a nihilistic universe. Meaning, I don't think it behooves us to imagine that there's any big brother or large creation entity who cares about humanity making it. It's up to us to figure out how to live in ways that are intelligent in terms of defining intelligence in terms of how does the earth work and how did human beings come into existence? And a larger question that I'll be suggesting an answer to is what do we owe our existence to? Because as a culture, we're basically bereft of any sense of a grounded identity. We're largely in an era that you could characterize as a postmodern ennui, where all values are kind of up for grabs, and there's really no sense of a bottom line. And what I'm gonna suggest is, no, there actually is a bottom line. And the bottom line 
is living as an organism in a manner that makes sense for how the meta-organism works. Because the meta-organism is the spaceship that's given us this comfy ride in outer space. So if we understand how Spaceship Earth works, we'll recognize that it's a very dynamic system, right? Just 500 million years ago, this is where the continents were. And so the continents have been changing. The planet has been shifting. It wasn't until the 1970s that plate tectonics was even something that was understood in geology. It wasn't until the 1930s that we even started to agree that there were such things as ice ages, right? So our understanding of this planet is something that's constantly developing, constantly evolving. And so that's what we want to grab a hold of is what are the latest understandings and then integrate them, synthesize them, and deductively infer what direction we should be taking in our behavior that is intelligent in terms of this empirical definition that we can quantify, right? There is a quantifiable, empirical, measurable degree of success that will show that we're doing the right thing. And that degree of success is to what degree are we enhancing biodiversity, and I would argue today cultivated diversity, which are the over 4,000 varieties of plants that have been domesticated throughout the course of our history, and the 53 species of animals that have been domesticated that have, again, made our lives easier. They're a cornucopia of diversity that our ancestors went through generations of natural selection to hold up to us, to say, here, we have naturally selected a brassica out of the wilderness and selected it to have some strange bulb on its stem that we call kohlrabi, that we all wonder what the heck to do with when our CSA drops it off. <laughs> We're like, well, it's one of those varieties that our ancestors made. What we know is that complex ecosystems show themselves to be superior in their ability to reduce energy gradients according to satellite measurements. Now, I'll, I'll bring these things down to like, well, what does that mean? What that means is that no monoculture can do as good a job at helping this planet give us a comfortable ride through outer space as a hardwood or a softwood or any mature ecosystem. By mature, I mean something that's had hundreds of years to develop. That's what's been shown through infrared satellite photographs of the planet Earth which places are the cool spots? Which places are the hot spots? The cool spots are the places where we still have large, intact, mature, diverse ecosystems. What that means is that things that humans are doing that deleteriously affect mature, diverse ecosystems are deleterious to having a comfortable ride for future generations on planet Earth. And what that means as a culture, we need to start to intentionally create places where we reintroduce and re-energize mature diverse ecosystems because they are our allies. When we think about evolution, evolution has consistently become more diverse and complex. This is one of the clear understandings as we look at the stratigraphic message of what the geologic time scale shows about the history of life on Earth. What it's been doing is it's been getting more complex over the last four and a half billion years. Very successfully, it's been adapting to solar flux. And it's been adapting to the fact that the sun has gotten 30% hotter. But guess what? The earth hasn't. This is part of why Gaia theorists are saying what life is doing is life is begetting circumstances that benefit life. Because if life were not able to take this solar flux and literally disperse it, diffuse it, and transmute it into more of itself, 
That's what biology has been doing. Biology has been successfully taking this constant payload of nuclear energy from the sun and using it to proliferate itself. And where it really started to kick it into high gear was about 500 million years ago. But initially, what we want to understand is that it took billions of years of life living in the ocean before it ever was able to develop the basic building blocks that made it possible for the diversification and in particular for speciation to occur. Because bacteria does not have species. Bacteria changes its genetic structure as heat changes. Bacteria is not a species. Bacteria doesn't have prokaryotic or eukaryotic capacities and it doesn't have sexual reproduction. And for about the first two billion years of life, all we see is bacteria. Speciation and adaptive radiation spread all over the planet. Bacteria started and dates back to about 3,500 million years ago, 3.5 billion years ago. The first protoctists developed about 2,000 million years ago, about 2 billion years ago. The first animals show up about 600 million years ago and the first fungi show up about 450 million years ago. One of the things I wanted to share with you that particularly fascinates me is some of the research of Lynn Margulis. Lynn Margulis is a scientist who teaches at University of Massachusetts, and she is one of the key thinkers in Gaia theory and what is called new biology. And what Lynn Margulis' research has unwoven, she has an awesome book called Acquiring Genomes, in which she shows very clearly that all major evolutionary leaps in species occurred through the entire integration of genomes from other organisms. In other words, it didn't happen from mutation, because if we think about basic studies in fruit flies, we'll find that most mutations are aberrant. Most mutations actually aren't really suited to doing well. They're aberrant. They don't really survive very well. That's what the problem is when they try to genetically engineer something like a sheep. I mean, a very difficult time getting something that's actually genetically viable. It turns out, according to Stephen Jay Gould with Punctuated Equilibrium and to Lynn Margulis, this is why we end up having to read a lot of books in the wintertime to piece all this stuff together. It turns out that what Margulis and Jay Gould are both saying is that major evolutionary leaps all occurred because literally some organism ate another organism and became one. Literally acquired entire genome sets. So that, and we'll build this up to thinking about our human body. Our body is made up of an incredibly complex array of microorganisms and symbionts that actually outnumber our human cells 10 to 1. So if you ask yourself, as a human being, how much of my body is, according to the Human Genome Project and the latest molecular chemistry, how much of my body is human as far as my cells, as far as the actual physical substance in my body? Turns out we're outnumbered 10 to 1 in our own domus, our own sacred temple, the body, 10 to one. We've got 10 times more symbionts and microorganisms than we do human cells in our bodies. According to the Human Microbiome Project, we have over 205 genera, not different organisms, but 205 genera, which is an entire family of organisms, over 205 different ones just on our skin. 
This is why it's so important that when a baby is born, it's held by its mother because that's our immune system. Our immune system is those 205 different genera of skin flora. And when we live in a culture that's phobic of bacteria and constantly killing microbial life, we are actually killing our most important allies in our health. So we need to understand the importance of these theories and see where do they lead us. This is about how much space is afforded in our classic geologic timescale for four billion years of existence on a planet that's only four and a half billion years old, right? So basically what geology is saying is like, well, there was stuff happening in those first four billion years, but it was a lot of bacteria and stuff in the ocean. And then where we really start paying attention is 500 million years ago. So in other words, there's kind of a mystery about the basic building blocks of life, which took four billion years to develop the complexity to decide to become precocious enough or to have a evolutionary circumstance that happened that caused life to then begin the adaptive speciation and radiation and migration onto the land. Now, why would life stay in the ocean for four billion years before ever coming onto the land? What is it about the ocean that's different than the land in terms of comfort? If you're on a planet that's traveling 65,000 miles per hour in outer space, spinning 1,000 miles per hour east at its equator, and the sun is coming up in the day and it's getting blasting hot, and then it's going down at night and it's getting really cold, what is it that's different about water than air in terms of its ability? It provides protection. It provides protection, and it, it provides protection because of its thermal mass. Thermal mass, I like to say as an as a ectomorph, the more mass that you have to your ass, the better you resist getting cold or getting hot, right? <laughs> Endomorphs know that and ectomorphs know that. Body types that have a tendency to heat up quick and cool down quick. Well, the planet works the same way. And where the most mass is, is in the ocean. And water has an incredible amount of thermal mass. And what that does is it resists heating and it resists cooling. And so it's the womb of life. So as we understand more of our inheritance, we'll begin to understand that, you know, this was some of the cooler stuff that biology and bacteria came up with as it lived in the ocean, bioluminescence. So it was still just staying in the ocean and figuring this out and like thermal mass. And what happens with thermal mass to keep that thread going in our storyline is that vegetation carries thermal mass onto the landscape. Because if you are in a forest and the sun goes down, it's going to get cold a lot later than if you are in the desert when the sun goes down. And the reason for that is the amount of moisture that's in the air. And what trees do and what vegetation does is they mimic what the ocean did for four billion years. They make life more comfortable for us because they do what I call moderate and mitigate the intensity of the vacillations of the flux and flow of life on Earth. They make it more comfortable for us. And so as we look at evolution, we see that the building blocks of life are the single-celled organisms and the bacteria, and that from them came everything else that we're familiar with. This is why I say that permaculture is not biocentric, it's anthropocentric. And the reason why I make that semantic distinction is to say that this is about saving our own butts. It's not about saving the polar bears and the whales. It's about recognizing that 
Human beings are deleteriously affecting other human beings by their ill-informed behavior. And we need a new ethic. We need a common agreement about how to behave. And that common agreement needs to recognize that we could blow up the planet 11 times over with our nuclear arsenal. For some reason, that seemed like a number that the Department of Defense stopped at. I don't know why they didn't think two was enough. You know, like having enough bombs to blow up the whole planet twice over might have been enough. But no, they built enough to blow up the entire planet 11 times over. That's how crazy the megalomaniac military industrial complex is. Right? So we have to know what we're dealing with, right? They own the media, they manipulate public opinion. That's why I say you have to turn off in order to turn on, in order to tune in. Because we are all being constantly programmed. We have to uncondition the conditioned mind as it's talked about in Buddhism. And how do we uncondition the conditioned mind? By beginning to just sit and tap into that innate cellular wisdom that predates the planet itself. Right? Recognize that. You literally, within the fabric of your being, have intelligence, have wisdom that we're not tuning into because we're constantly playing the media stimulation game. And we need to turn off in order to turn on, in order to tune in. And we need to recognize that even if we blow up this whole planet in a nuclear winter, guess what? It'll come back from the oceans. And in fact, this is what Margulis and Sagan and New Biology are also saying. Humanity doesn't really have the power that it thinks it has to destroy life on Earth. What humanity has the power to do is to destroy what we know as life on Earth, absolutely. And take it back to a point that we could say is morally and ethically reprehensible, without a doubt, but it's not to say that life cannot continue to exist on Earth. But it is to say that we only have, according to modern physics, about five billion more years to get it right, because our sun will then go red giant, and it will then create a coronasphere that'll fry all life on Earth in about another five billion years. So I think we've probably got enough time to figure this stuff out. About 65 million years ago is the die-off of the dinosaurs. And what happened with the die-off of the dinosaurs is that all around the planet, geologists found this material called iridium. And iridium doesn't exist on planet Earth. It only exists in meteorites. And that's how they know that what happened 65 million years ago was a giant meteorite slammed into the ocean, caused the crust to break open and form the continent of Greenland, which is geologically 65 million years old, and then created like a 40-year cloud around the entire planet that caused the temperatures to plummet, that caused the dinosaurs and many other cold-blooded animals to die in droves, which opened up the window for our proto-ancestor, which Lauren Isley characterizes as a tree-dwelling gopher. So as we think back and we see things like groundhogs were out there shooting with our 22 in our farmsteads, we realize, oh, that's actually our proto-ancestor, something like a tree-dwelling gopher. And in fact, one of the main things that civilization is constantly butting heads with, again, is another one of our proto-ancestor relatives, which are rodents, rats, and mice have followed us into our cities. And we have evolved from these very small, furry, mammalian organisms that had a window open up for them 65 million years ago because the dominant life forces on the planet were killed by this very cold period that happened. So it's about adaptation. How do we adapt? Now as an organism, humans really began majorly to differentiate as a hominid 
somewhere around 10 million years ago. So if we ask what's the latest anthropology, what's the latest archaeology, what's the latest molecular amino acid analysis of our DNA chain? I'm sure a lot of you asked that question. The, mo <laughs> the molecular analysis of our DNA chain shows if you look at amino acids and you say, well, how long would it take for our amino acid structure to morphologically differentiate itself from the molecular structure of a chimpanzee? Turns out it's about seven million years time. And this is why the Human Genome Project says that we are 99% related to chimpanzees. 99% related to chimps. Human beings are. About seven million years ago, human beings began to start to morphologically differentiate from the family tree that today still has chimpanzees and mountain gorillas on it and bonobos, right? And what it turns out is one of the major things that changed our species and caused this growth of brain size is diet. It looks like specifically what occurred about seven million years ago was that a primate who lived in a certain part of Africa started eating roots a lot more than fruits. And what occurred is that these really rich, dense, packed carbohydrates gave us the energy to begin to start to create the opportunity for something like a large organ to develop. Because what we'll find in physiology and the morphology of organisms is that the only time an organism develops a particularly large organ is when it has enough caloric energy to put energy into that. In other words, a bird that develops particularly huge wings is a bird that's eating a really rich diet. And so it's able to allocate caloric energy to developing this particularly robust physical structure. It turns out in order for human beings to do something like have a really large brain, we had to have a really banging diet. And in fact, what that diet did was it shrank the length of our intestinal tract and it shrank our stomach and it made it possible for this brain to develop that is using 85% of our body's energy. This thing is like high demand resource, this brain thing. And it took a lot of caloric energy to bring it about. The next major leap for our species that brought about this brain growth after eating roots was cooking the ability to control fire, the ability to cook plants. Because it turns out, if you study chimpanzees and bonobos and mountain gorillas, you'll find that they're spending almost half their day chewing their food. You'll find that you cannot get the amount of caloric energy that your body needs from an entirely raw diet without a lot of cold processing, which is something that chimps and mountain gorillas and bonobos did not have blenders. They did not have Cuisinarts. All they had were their teeth. And in order to live on a raw diet, what they have are incredibly huge jaws with a huge set of muscles that connect to the top of their cranium. And what it took for human beings to have a smaller mouth and smaller teeth and a shorter intestinal tract and a smaller stomach and a big brain was cooked food. Catching fire, the professor at Harvard of biology and anthropology and the curator of the Gombe chimpanzee protection area is who this theory is coming from. He wrote a book called Catching Fire. It's a fascinating read. As you think about the brain and our evolution, generally what neurologists are talking about is the triune brain. The reptilian hind brain is the most ancient part of the brain. Then we have the limbic brain, which is the mammalian brain, which is primarily where 
the alleles that are shared with our heart exist. And this is where heart math starts to come into play when we think about how do we heal our own immune system? Partially by changing our state of mind and by, of course, eventually changing a society that's raining down carcinogens, pterogens, and mutagens on us, right? I want to be very careful in that conversation to make that distinction and say, yes, it's both about state of mind when we think about what Andrew Wheel with spontaneous healing and what many other holistic doctors have offered insights into that are very important. And that's what I'm going to elaborate on a little bit more here. But I want to qualify it very carefully because in a culture where the latest White House study tells us that in fact 90% of cancers are directly attributable to environmental pollution. We need to get past the notion that this is about how we think, or how we feel, right? There is an aspect of that that's very important and critical and fundamental. But there is an aspect of change that has to happen at a meta level in our culture and our democracy and around our planet in order for our state of mind to actually be able to heal ourselves. Because if we're constantly being inundated with carcinogens, teratogens, mutagens, and endocrine disruptors, which turns out, according to National Academy of Sciences, have what's called a multiple exposure synergy. What's that? What that means is that when you're exposed to a carcinogen and endocrine disruptor, it actually ramps up tenfold your likelihood to contract a carcinoma. Because what the endocrine disruptor does is it tweaks your limbic system. And it tweaks the endocrine system, which regulates the hormones in your body. And it depresses it significantly, the endocrine disruptors do. And then the carcinogen comes in and adds a double whammy on top of that. And your body is already now, because you drank from that Poland spring bottle, soft plastic on the back of your window, all hot, took a swig off of that. Now you're inhaling the formaldehyde fumes from your car and inhaling diesel particulate from the fresh direct truck that just took off in front of you, right? <laughs> and you're like, huh. Guess what? According to National Academy of Sciences, you're 10 times more likely to contract a carcinoma from the multiple exposure synergy of how these things interact. Well, guess how the EPA regulates and the FDA? Single exposure acceptable levels that are determined based on you're only getting exposed to carcinogens and the pesticide residue on your cornflakes. Right? You're not getting exposed to it in the fabric of your clothing or the automobiles or walking along the street in New York City. Right? But we are. We're constantly being inundated with a plethora. So yes, state of mind is critical, but so is the state of our affairs in our environment. And both have to change. And when we think about healing our own bodies and how our immune system works, what heart math science has started to unveil is that the heart and our endocrine system doesn't really deal well with postmodern ennui when it comes to thinking about how it is going to function. In other words, we don't really have gray days with the heart and our immune system. It's either an up day or a bad day. You're either feeling good or you're feeling crappy. The immune system doesn't really function well with this sort of like philosophical investigation of how am I feeling today? It's like, no, it's really black and white. It's really like, look in the, look in the mirror and force yourself to smile. Literally, physically, what we're finding is that all kinds of endorphins, all kinds of things in your physiology simply don't work if you don't feel good. They, they just don't work very well. So that's why I like to say I'm willing to die happy as an optimist and be wrong than to die angry as a cynic and be right. I don't, I don't care that much about being right to be unpleasant and unhappy and to be down all the time. And in the Northeast, we have to constantly countervail the cynicism 
that's here as a cultural matrix of how to deal with a deluge of irrationality and insane behavior. We try to process with our sort of cynical analytical minds, right? And we're like, well, how do we navigate through all this stuff? And a lot of times it's to be critical and cynical. There's a lot of reasons why it's good to just kind of fake it sometimes for yourself. And literally, physiologically, it, it makes a difference, we're finding, as we look at these studies of things that you could probably inferentially, deductively reason out. But it's nice to have some science to kind of back it up, too. So it turns out that in humans who have been raised by mothers who are in an environment where they're physically under threat and they're not in a supportive and caring place, the reptilian hindbrain becomes overdeveloped and the neocortex becomes underdeveloped. And this has been found by Stanford and Harvard University tests in high security prisons throughout the country where they're studying what are the physical therapy ways that we can help people begin to reconnect with the ability to empathize. What makes it possible for a human being to empathize with another human being? Turns out we're hardwired to be able to do that, but it also turns out that if a mother is not in an environment where she's receiving love and support and where that baby is receiving unconditional love in its critical developmental years, which it turns out goes all the way up to 21 years old, <laughs> if you look at the human being and you say, how long is our brain in a developmental stage of growing? Till we're 21, that's how long. And so if you wanna understand why as a species we have to support socially and culturally every baby that's born. That's why, because as a culture, as a society, we realize that we're all at risk if any one person isn't taken care of. Because you begin to realize if you empathize that that person could be you. So by 250,000 years ago, Homo sapiens develops. It turns out that those major morphological leaps from Homo habilis to Homo erectus were again directly related to diet and directly related to the ability to control fire. And that our matrilineal collective grandmother of all people on earth, who is dubbed mitochondrial Eve, dates back to about 200,000 years ago around the equatorial rain belt. About 100,000 years ago, is when Homo sapiens sapiens comes about. And Homo sapiens sapiens interacted, interbred, made love and made war with Neanderthal about 100,000 years ago. And by about 75,000 years ago, there was a big bottleneck that happened for our species that took us down to about a few thousand people altogether. And that was a giant explosion that occurred in Sumatra that is a caldera that today is about 65 miles across. And that explosion created another very long ice age and cold period that caused a massive die-off for our species and took us down to just a few thousand individuals. Modern humans lived as hunter-gatherers for about 50,000 years. And then somewhere about 10,000 years ago, we start moving out and moving towards places like the Tigris-Euphrates River Valley and the major seats of civilization, and we began domesticating plants and animals. This is an image of our electromagnetic field that's generated by our heart. So what turns out is that a human being who has been raised in an environment with unconditional love has the ability to empathize with another human being and actually has their heart rate fall into sync when they're within about 10 feet of one another. 
And that that happens because our electromagnetic fields are actually traveling around our bodies in about a 10 to 12 foot radius. And so every single one of us, because of this 2.5 watt electrical charge of our heart beating, is generating this EMF field. And this EMF field is what we would call our intuitive sense, our ability to recognize when somebody's walking up behind us, right? That's because of our EMF field, is, is sensing that somebody else's EMF field has just bumped into it. It turned out in those studies that Stanford and Harvard did with homicidal killers in prisons, that they had to sit holding hands, knees touching, looking eye to eye, and then after a minute or two, their heart rates would fall into sync. But for people who've been raised in a caring and loving environment, it'll happen like right now in this room, most likely our heart rates are all in sync. And that happens very quickly for humans who haven't been damaged by their environment. But we are soft, fleshy biological organisms who are easily damaged by our environment. And that EMF field that our heart is generating is the same shape configuration as the EMF field that surrounds the earth. What we're interested in doing is creating a high quality of life for ourselves and maintaining a reasonably sized societies that self-regulate to work well with the carrying capacities of the places we call home. As we think about what are we trying to do with things like permaculture design, we're looking at how do we increase the carrying capacity of the places we call home? How do we make it possible for people to live well on the earth where they are? And how do we provide more of their material needs, goods and services within a closer proximity of where they are? And in that sense, cooperating with the long-term evolutionary processes of how the earth works. And we'll find that in fact, our intestines and our whole digestive tract are made up of anaerobic microorganisms that predate life on the surface of the planet because about two billion years ago was the first major extinction event which happened when the atmosphere flipped from being primarily methane rich to being primarily oxygen rich. And that occurred because of blue-green algae living in the ocean, which today is still the largest generator of oxygen on the planet, is blue-green algae in the ocean. And the cyanobacteria had an effect on the overall atmosphere of the planet that caused a major die-off of all these methane-dependent bacteria that had been the dominant species for the first two billion years of life on Earth. And so two billion years ago was the first major extinction die-off event, and it was when the Earth's atmosphere flipped from being a methane-rich atmosphere because of the metabolic processes of methane-based bacteria to an oxygen-rich atmosphere because of the metabolic processes of oxygen-based microorganisms in the ocean. I'm sorry, bacteria, which are distinct from microorganisms because they're single cell. So it's this single cell bacteria that is a methanogen is still what is alive in our intestinal tract and enables us to digest food. So those methanogen anaerobic organisms that live in our intestines came with us from the ancient ocean over two billion years ago. This is just a cross section of what is, how complex our intestines are and really to understand more about that, I'm gonna, I'm gonna return to that theme a little bit. So again, the Human Microbiome Project is looking at how many different things live on us, live in us, and we are literally outnumbered 10 to one with microorganisms. 
and symbionts that we depend upon for the ability to walk. Because there, if we took them out of our body, we would fall over dead and I couldn't be standing here talking to you. If I removed that 10 to 1 microbiology that I utterly and fundamentally depend upon. That's why we need to understand what, what is our inheritance? What is our biology? What does it mean to be a human on Earth? How do we function? The flow of energy through the system from source to sink. This is the kind of thing that permaculture is fascinated with. It's the idea that when sun hits the planet, what's happening to it? The source is when the solar flux hits the planet's surface. We as a biological organism on planet Earth want to ask ourselves, how can we do a better job of sequestering, accruing, and channeling solar income through more life and dispersing it and diffusing it? Because that's what it is that ultimately we get yields from and comfort from and a good experience on this planet. So the more that we sequester, accrue, and channel solar flux, the more that we ultimately are able to have a better quality of life with less inputs because it's a wise way to make use of existing energy. It's energy that's just spilling over the planet's surface that causes things like urban heat island effect and worse air pollution in the city in the summertime because what's happening there is there's not enough biology, there's not enough physical structure in plants to take that solar flux and do something with it. And what permaculture design is saying, you're missing a yield. You're missing low-hanging fruit. You're missing free lunch. Your free lunch is saying, how about if we use vegetation, biology, and complex ecosystems to harvest, sequester, accrue, and channel as much solar income as possible? And how about if we use those 4,000 varieties of cultivated, domesticated plants to do that? And some of those 53 species of animals that have been domesticated and selectively bred to do that in our cities every place where we live. We need to do a better job of channeling, sequestering, and accruing solar income and growing more life with it because life begets the circumstances that benefit life. And what that means is the best way to heal a damaged ecosystem is to reconnect it to more of itself. We are ecosystems. We are walking, complex, biological, electromagnetic ecosystems that need to be reconnected with more of ourselves. Well, what is ourselves? Well, ourselves is both microbiology, bacteria, and mature diverse ecosystems that we evolved from in the equatorial rain belt over four million years ago. And what we know is that we either use it or we lose it when it comes to our physiology, which means things like running and climbing and physically using our bodies and being around trees and being around diverse mature ecosystems are actually essential for human health and well-being. And we're depriving our children of that when we think things like giving them more computers is what we need for a good education. Now what we actually need are mature diverse ecosystems to play in, to be healthy humans. And the degree to which we're denigrating those is the degree to which we're losing our true advanced intelligence as a species. I would argue we're not advanced because what we're doing is we're debilitating the air that we breathe, the water that we drink, the health of what it is that we ingest, and the overall genetic integrity of the people of the planet. And by doing so, we're actually not doing what is advanced or intelligent. So this flow of energy through the system 
Can we channel it? Permaculture is the process by which human beings modify and adapt to life on Earth. We both modify our landscape and we adapt to the natural variables that exist in it. And so, as I mentioned, we evolved around the equatorial rain belt and we are a naked ape that comes from planet Earth and we are adapting to this Earth. And what we want to understand is how to observe, how to analyze, and how to deduce what is positive action that can be taken to heal ourselves and to heal our homes and our communities. What can we practically, tangibly do to begin to participate in evolution in positive ways rather than in degenerative ways? And how can we optimize off of evolution? So remembering that the Earth's rotation has slowed significantly over the last several billion years, and life has been really degrading energy in the sun more than in the dark. What I mean by that is that life has really adapted to this thing of sequestering, accruing, and channeling solar income. That's what it's been doing. And over the past 500 million years, as I mentioned, it's gotten particularly robust at its ability to disperse and diffuse and channel solar flux into more of itself and has begotten itself all over the land surface now. And I like to say also that the flow of energy in and around our bodies and the biodiversity that is a part of us and is a big part of what makes us healthy is very profound in its complexity. If we begin to really understand what is going on with this flow of energy, how much of our body is made up of biodiversity and how it is all working together to make us a healthy functioning human being. It's a particularly complex and mystical phenomenon. Existence is something that is synergistic and has a simultaneity to it, which means that language, math, science, they're all methods of dissection and reduction. But reality is a synergistic simultaneity that you can't break down into bits and pieces. We're just doing that to the degree that's useful for us to be able to talk about it and come up with things that we can agree upon and then have coordinated behavior to move forward with. So again, realizing we are a primate that evolved from primates in the equatorial rain belt, even though 50% of the state of Kansas would argue against me on this point. <laughs> I'm going to say that it's fundamental to creating a healthy future for humanity on Earth. To begin to understand that we are 99% related to chimpanzees, that we are an ape who lives on this planet. And to what degree we are suited to planet Earth. We are not some aberrant imposition on this macroorganism. We are part of this planet. We are part of evolution. We are a gift to the Earth. What we need to do is understand the mistakes we've made. We need to use history in the way that Herodotus, who wrote the first histories in 400 BC, suggested we would use history, which is to learn from our mistakes. That's the point of history. It's not to be an apologist propaganda tool for a war machine, for instance. These are the landscapes that we evolved in. We didn't evolve in high-rise buildings, for instance, I want to suggest. We didn't evolve with uh, motor-powered vehicles, right? We didn't evolve with cell phones and uh, iPhones. Those actually weren't 
part of our, we actually evolved here. We actually are, we actually all are naked apes. We actually all are biological organisms who are well suited to this planet. And if this whole infrastructure collapses, we'll figure out what to do. I guarantee you, we will figure out what to do. Human beings are innovative, they're imaginative, they're creative, they're resilient, they're flexible, they're adaptive. Like that's how we made it up to the Arctic Circle, even though we're a naked ape. Who, why did we do that? Probably so we could run faster, probably so that we didn't have as many bed bugs at night, because it turns out the bed bugs actually can be traced back to an organism that jumped onto us in caves somewhere around 20,000 years ago when people during that period of that giant explosion from the caldera were running back to places that stayed steadily warm. Well, it turns out the Earth's temperature, right, if you're in a cave, is always 45 to 52. I mean, that's not an exactly pleasant temperature, but it's better than freezing to death out in the cold. If you go back into a cave and you start a fire, and then at night you go to sleep, and there's a bunch of bats hanging up above you, these pests jumped off of bats and onto people. So morphologically, the wonderful bed bugs of New York City have been traced back to bats in caves over 20,000 years ago, showing that unequivocally, humans have an array of hosts that have decided to take up camp on us that through our history have evolved with us, right? We're part of evolution and our very bodies are a reflection of this and we can trace it back through time. Recognizing again the bipedalism, the use of tools, the use of our hands, our mobility. Why would an ape have stopped living in trees and not been likely to be eaten by predators? If you're not a giant mountain gorilla and you're a naked ape or you're a little Homo habilis or you're little Lucy from 3.5 million years ago who's about 5'3 and weighs about 97 pounds, why isn't a saber-toothed tiger just gonna eat you for a snack at nighttime if you're not up in a tree? Fire, fire. So fundamentally, the ability to create a fire was the first and most important step that separated humanity from all life on Earth, and it still, I would argue, is our largest distinguishing characteristic, is the fact that we know how to control fire. There's absolutely no other animal on the Earth that knows how to make a fire, or knows how to take a fire with it. And that's why we've been able to leave the equatorial rain belt, because if we had never figured out how to make fire, what is it about the equatorial rain belt that's kind of like the ocean? It's warm. It doesn't really vacillate a lot. Right? But as soon as you start to go north or south, things vacillate a lot. You get into these northern temperate regions, man, it gets cold. Didn't get that cold this winter, but generally speaking, it gets cold, right? And you keep going further north, like where the where the Eskimos and where the Inuits live, right? And it's really cold. Like, how do those people live? Well, they put seal blubber in a geode and then they put moss as a little ring on the geode and they build this snow igloo and in there they've got their geode with the seal blubber and the moss wick. And if they didn't have that seal blubber burning on the moss wick, they would not be able to survive around the Arctic Circle. And if they didn't cook a great majority of their food, they also would not be able to get the caloric density. Latest studies are showing there's no traditional culture that eats a majority of raw food. They eat some, they eat some in duress when they have to, but all studies are showing that what's essential for a rich caloric dense diet is cooking.
fire. <clears throat> Soft, fleshy biologic organisms. This is my baby daughter, Juniper. I just like to show her off to people. But no, it's also a way of saying, this is a soft, fleshy, biologic organism that's likely to die, right? Like babies, I think, really highlight for us, like, wow, you know what? It turns out in our history, in our history, far longer we've been prey than we've been predators. It turns out that psychologically, that's probably had some pretty significant effects on us as a species. The fact that things were eating us for much more of our collective existence, genetically speaking, than we've been eating things. We haven't been top dog on the totem pole in terms of a predator species for the majority of our existence. Remembering the majority of our existence is somewhere around 100,000 years ago to 200,000 years ago. But it also dates back to the first primate that separated off from that branch about 7 million years ago. And from that time period, about 7 million years ago up to about 100,000 years ago, humans were prey far more than they were predators. And so one of the most important things for us to ask is how did babies survive? How did women survive? Not man the hunter running around killing things with his spear, but actually what did it take for a little soft fleshy baby to be able to make it? And it turns out we're neoteny. When you look at neoteny means that we're preemies. All humans are preemies. If you look at the gestation time period of a chimp or a mountain gorilla, anybody know how long it is? 24 months, 24 months. Humans are all preemies, why? Because any woman can tell you about the pain of birth and it'd be death, it would, it would cause women to die because of the fact that the cranium would simply get too big and couldn't pass through the birth canal. And so what happens is the cranium, of course, isn't fully fused as we all know, it has these old plates that when a baby is born, it still has a soft spot at the back of its head and those plates slowly start to fuse after it's born. That's so the head can literally flex as it passes through the birth canal. And if human beings got any bigger in utero, they, they wouldn't be able to pass through that birth canal without killing their mother. And so it turns out that our gestation time period is only nine months because the majority of brain evolution happens after birth. It doesn't happen in utero. Whereas with chimpanzees, mountain gorillas, and bonobos, it all happens 24 months is the gestation period for a chimp or a gorilla. So humans have evolved a whole capacity to have a huge amount of our developmental action happening after we're born because it's a critical part of what made it possible for our species to be able to have this particularly huge brain that's taking up 85% of our body's energy. Recognizing again that the single greatest ecological tool that humanity has ever created and that is critical to our diet and critical to the brain growth and the size of the gut and our intestinal tract is this. It's this, it's the ability to create fire. That's what it is that made human babies able to produce and mothers able to continue to stay fertile you'll see that it's completely diet related. You'll see that women who starve themselves in order to win a marathon also stop ovulating. And you'll see that in terms of natural selection, it doesn't make sense that as a species, we could have evolved from just eating things that weren't processed with fire. Does not make evolutionary sense. If you look at our intestines, if you look at our stomach, 
If you look at our mouths, if you look at the size of our teeth, you'll see that Homo erectus and no other ape on the planet has small teeth or a small mouth. And that's because they eat a diet that is entirely raw. We evolved to eat cooked food over two million years ago when we adapted and became Homo erectus. And that's when our teeth got small. That's when our jaws got small. That's when the musculature that connected to the top of the head changed. And that's when our guts got small. And that's when our intestinal tract could get shorter. All of those things are directly related to this fire and the ability for human beings to continue to enhance both their landscape, keep predators away, stop climbing trees and sleep on the ground because they could build a fire and keep the predators away and start cooking plant food and release all kinds of caloric energy that they couldn't release if they just chewed their food for half of their day. It, would, it causes an entirely different dental structure, entirely different physiology. The only explanation that is now clear from molecular science, from physiology, from biology, from anthropology, all the evidence is in. There's no other explanation for the size of our teeth, no other explanation for the size of our brain, which is an incredibly high energetic fat dependent organism. And when you look at women and you say, what makes it possible for a woman to have a healthy baby? You'll see 100% explanation is diet. And you'll see that any person who is trying to raise a baby on a diet that doesn't have a lot of good fat in it is having a lot of struggles with giving that baby what it needs. So fire controls ecosystems, changes ecosystems, makes it possible for something like a Homo sapiens to wander around through a forest and suddenly see what it wants to kill and know what's going to kill it. One of the major things that made it possible for our eyes to develop the ability to see different colors is now being theorized that it has to do with the coevolutionary relationship with venomous snakes. Because it turns out that when you look at monkeys around the planet and you say, are there monkeys who have evolved in environments with venomous snakes who have really good eyesight? It turns out, no. Every monkey around the world that has co-evolved in an environment with venomous snakes has very acute eyesight and the ability to see all kinds of different distinctions between Roy G. Biv. It turns out monkeys on Madagascar where there are no venomous snakes have very poor eyesight. It's turning out that as an organism, we're seeing that we have really been shaped by our environment. So fundamentally, our physiology has been about adaptation to the planet and the ability to respond to things like dying for millions of years or not dying. And what is it that genetically, physiologically made it possible for us to continue to invest so much caloric energy in this giant brain and having this really small gut and having these awesome eyes is about the fact that we lived around the equatorial rain belt where there were a lot more venomous and poisonous snakes than there are in the new world. The new world monkeys also lack very acute color vision because again, venomous snakes were not a major part of their environment. So recognizing that fire and evolution and our ability to control fire has been what made it possible for humans to leave the equatorial rain belt. We would have never left the equatorial rain belt if we hadn't had the ability to make fire. We would have just stayed there because we would have been too freaking cold if we tried to go any further north. Just would not have been comfortable. 
the fire is what it is that's enabled us to adaptively radiate and speciate all over the planet. And as we think about primarily what, for the bulk of human history, what did our ancestors do to communicate? Really some of the most important places for us to go and practice that Shikantaza Buddhism of just sitting are places where there are cave paintings and pictographs and petroglyphs because these are messages from our ancestors that are nonverbal. These are important. These are fundamental to our collective identity and they're very significant and we have a tendency as a culture to just be fascinated with the written word in the past 10,000 years and we've lost touch with the fact that actually we've evolved out of bacteria that existed over four billion years ago in the ocean which then evolved into microorganisms which then evolved into plants which then evolved into animals which then evolved into things like rodents which then evolved and morphologically turned into primates which then evolved and turned into us right we evolved on this planet we are part of this planet we are well suited to planet earth and what permaculture design is about is about adapting and modifying our behavior to pay attention to what our story is, what is our collective identity. For the bulk of about, from about 10,000 years ago up to about 5,000 years ago, this is the most widely dispersed, most commonly found archeological artifact, what is called Venus of Wollendorf. And it is definitely clear that for a very long time, humans worshiped maternity and the ability for women to give birth, right? That was something that we clearly understood early on was actually very cosmic, very mystical and fundamental. We seem to have lost sight with that. We're now in a very diseased, damaged, disconnected from our matriarchal and our matrilineal connections and fully obsessed with the head and the patrilineal patriarchal picture, right? Rian Eisler and the chalice and the blade and look into, you know, there's a whole set of archaeology evidence about this. Again, realizing this is a major message of our ancestors that's here for us to experience and to learn from and to simply sit with and let soak into our cultural matrix. This is a site that's in Canyonlands in Utah. It's called the Great Gallery. And I just like to recommend if anybody gets out to the Southwest that this is a pictographic site that is considered the high form of a style that's called Fremont. I was very fascinated with pictographs and petroglyphs and I've spent a lot of time in the Southwest visiting them. The Great Gallery is an incredible site and I've been there several times. And the, this is what's called the Holy Ghost. And this figure is over 12 feet tall by about four feet wide. And you're on a shelf that walks right underneath them. And the ochre that they, dug out and the pigments that they used you can see dug out of the cliff face itself and then they painted these with it and it has a cliff overhanging it that's protected it and they don't know how old it is it's dated maybe to be about 10,000 years ago and so archaeoastronomy is the study of ancient sites where where our ancestors were building places to specifically align with the cosmic energy of the universe and some of what i want to start to get into here is how do we align our bodies to tap into our inherent energy? And some of what I'm suggesting here is that 
There are physical places in the landscape that we need to sit that are power points, that are places like ley lines, that are archaeoastronomical sacred sites. And what I'm suggesting is that we need to create them in the landscapes where we are so that we can align our internal body energy. Paying attention to where the sun sets, where the sun rises, where is the moon, where are the constellations, is part of really deeply tapping into our inner cosmic energy and unlocking it at a level that we simply cannot do if we don't pay attention to geography, right? So this is a map of the United States, which is a artifice that we've created that's a nation state that we sort of anchor our identity in. So I speak a little bit to that concept that we're Americans living on a continent that we call North America. And the notion is, to what degree can we understand the energetics of land? And what permaculture is saying is the bottom line in land is geology and geography. And what you want to know is we start to adapt and modify where we live to make it healthier for ourselves to meet more of our needs, as you remember I was saying earlier, within a reasonable distance of where we live. That part of what we want to do is pay attention to geography and geology, and we want to reconfigure what I like to call our infrastructure to be more suited to the local geography and geology. What I'm suggesting here is that we start to adapt and modify and pay attention to certain bottom lines. And this is an outline of the country breaking it down into places that share similar soils, similar hydrology, similar plant and animal communities, similar climates. And what they create is a bottom line from which we can begin to design empirically quantifiably more well-suited infrastructures that are adapted to what's our climate like? What are the local plant and animal communities like? What's the soil like here? And they're actually bite-sized chunks that have been differentiated and delineated that follow topography and geography. They don't follow state boundaries, but they do pay attention to geography and geology. It turns out the EPA, the DEP, and the Nature Conservancy also are all using these maps to now talk about how to regulate things like water and air pollution. They're now using what they call eco-regions. And as we think about somewhere like Manhattan, and how do we begin to tune our bodies into the cosmic energy of the sun rising and the sun setting and be able to tap into that real cosmic intelligence that we have, we want to think of places where we could honor the sunrise and the sunset and the lunar cycles. And we want to start to think about reconfiguring our landscapes to really pay attention to what is the local geology, geography? What's the local landscape like? And this is a shot of green belts, which in Europe is about as far thinking as we've gotten in terms of starting to say, should we intentionalize the relationship between a city and the rural areas that outlie it? And in what ways should we intentionalize these relationships? And what I'm suggesting here is that this is a good beginning. Green belts are okay, but they tend to be based on something like, are you 100 miles away from Amsterdam? Are you 50 miles away from Stockholm? Are you following a little finger corridor that we just delineated on a map, right? It's not paying attention to topography. It's not paying attention to geography. And if you saw a landscape where you gave tax incentives for land use patterns to occur that were more ecological and they ended at a 100 mile line away from New York City, you would see a very artificial and contrived transition that made no geographic sense whatsoever. Where you would suddenly cross a line and the type of land use pattern, the type of farming, and the type of 
forestry that was going on would change completely and it wouldn't make any sense in terms of ridges and drops and stream valleys and watersheds at all. It would just say, oh, what's a hundred mile food shed for New York City? Well, a hundred mile food shed, that makes no rational sense because what we actually want to work with is what is. And what is, is actually defined by geology, topography, and geography. It's not defined just by distance, right? How you define what's local is not just whether it's 100 miles away. It has to do with, was it grown in a way that made sense? Was it energy that was generated in a way that made sense? Was it building material that was grown in a way that made sense for that bioregion? Did they farm in a manner that made sense for the North Atlantic coast, right? And that's the eco-region or bioregion that New York City is in, that Boston is in, that Washington DC is in. They are in what is called the North Atlantic Coast bioregion. But as soon as you get up into Orange County and Ulster County and you get up the Hudson, you're into what's called the Northern Piedmont eco-region or bioregion. As we look at cities and we think about retrofitting cities, I think Cities we want to recognize over 50% of the world's today lives, over 50% of the world's population today lives in cities. And that's why it is that I take on the task as a permaculture designer of doing what I call salvaging the hub of civilization. There are a lot of people who would like to say, I ah, just let it all burn up in flames and dance around while the dinosaur crashes. And I've studied permaculture with some of those people and I have to say, I don't find it very compelling. I don't. Because what I think is compelling is for us to be willing to take on the real work, as Gary Snyder defines it, the Dharma work of healing the mistakes we've made and taking responsibility for future generations on this planet. And what that means is addressing health and well-being in urban landscapes and taking on that nugget. And what I'm pursuing and what I'm teaching and actively involved in is what I call salvaging the hub of civilization. What is the hub of civilization? It's the fundamental hinge pin of what we depend upon, which is agriculture and energy and how are those things being done? How are we providing ourselves with the energy we need and how are we feeding ourselves? And as a culture, we've allocated feeding ourselves to less than 1% of the population, people like Archer Daniels Midland. And if we wanna have corporate solutions to feeding ourselves, let's keep letting them grow food for us and we'll continue to see genetically engineered, mechanized, chemicalized solution sets because that's what corporate food is all about. But if we want to reclaim our integrity, reclaim our health, reclaim our autonomy, that's about being producers, not just consumers. That's about being the people who make the new economy happen. You have nutrient flows, you have solar flux, you have all this energy coming into this landscape, you're losing it, you're not capturing it, you're not doing anything with it. As a result, you have urban heat island effect, you have air pollution, you have water pollution. But if all you did was you said, could we catch, hold, and store and utilize as much of that energy on site? That's one of our key permaculture principles. Can I catch, hold, store energy high in the system and gravity feed it? Because gravity is something that's always working on planet Earth. Then I don't have to use industrial engineering to get water to the top of a high-rise building if I catch it, hold it, and store it on the 19th floor of a 20-story high-rise building. Right? Then I can start to gravity feed it and generate energy from it as I do something like flush a toilet and then the water when it goes from my toilet goes to a biogas generator in the basement that produces the methane gas when I turn on my stove. 
Right? This is not something that's out of reach at all for us and is starting to be something that we need to start to really look at as a design level and as contractors and as entrepreneurs who position ourselves to be the people who implement the new infrastructure. Because the new infrastructure, the new economy, the new society is not going to happen without us as producers without the consumer society turning around and saying, we don't just want to buy stuff made by somebody else, shipped from somewhere else that we had no participation in. And we don't want to just sit back and wait for corporations or the government to change a bunch of policies and rules. We're going to start right now, starting the bicycle compost pickup business in Williamsburg that goes to restaurants, creates soil, so we can do rooftop gardens with stuff that right now is being trucked out of the city to places as far away as Texas, right? So our trash used to be dumped 29 miles off of New York City, create a dead zone there. So then they dumped it 109 miles off of New York City, create a dead zone there. So then they started trucking it to Texas to an 85,000 acre landfill in Texas. This is a lost yield. It's a huge debauched problem. And what our ecological Aikido permaculture lenses tell us to do in a situation like that is turn wastes into resources. Over and over again, if you simply take the bottom line of how can we take black water, gray water, solar flux that is causing urban heat island effect, and instead of having it cause a hemorrhage that is a deficit, how do we turn it into an asset? How do we start to get a yield? How do we start to keep buildings cool by having living roofs and urban agriculture and having vines growing on them and trees growing all around them? Not solar panels with AC units from Germany that are low energy. That's not... That's not an ecological solution. That's a green tech solution that corporations love because it's another product line. But biology will go a lot further than technology. And what permaculture is saying is first, did we do it with biology and passively? Second, did we do it with ecology? Third, did we do it with something that's low tech and renewable? Right? So before you jump to low tech and renewable, start with biology. Did you plant some vines? Did you plant some trees? Did you plant a living roof? Now you got PV panels to pump water so that your CSA could say they were doing something eco instead of putting in a 3,000 gallon tank off of their huge barn that's upland and gravity feeding it. Because you can get a grant to put in the solar panels to power the 220 pump. But guess what? Last time I checked, PV panels have a pretty major ecological footprint. They're very toxic, tons of hazardous byproducts. And what we want to ask before we purchase anything like that is, do I really need it? Is it the best solution? Or could I do the same service with biology rather than technology before I start supporting a market that inherently creates hazardous byproducts that very well will be toxic after I'm dead and gone? Right? So you buy a Prius, turns out for every one ton of manufactured car, you're looking at 13 tons of hazardous waste. 13 tons of hazardous waste for every one ton of automobile. So I ask you, how ecological is that? We're talking about huge hazardous waste deficits when what do we really need? High-speed rail in the Northeastern Corridor, right? What do we really need? To bring back in railroads that have been abandoned and turned away from being something that connects our towns to each other more intelligently. Because rail inherently is 10 times a better solution set than something like substitution where you're just sticking biodiesel into a bunch of tractor-trailer trucks, cutting down old growth forests in the tropical area and planting a bunch of date palms so you can have 10% ethanol at your pumps, right? That's not a good solution set. And that's the problem with substitution. And that's the problem with carbon being your only solution set as well. So green roofs are actually a very important part of urban heat island effect, huge amount of potential. 
in starting to get serious about being the contractors, the implementers, the installers. That's why I work with one of my teachers is Dwayne Lee, who started the Sustainability South Bronx program in Green Job Training course in Green Roof Installation. He's now working with the Horticultural Society, creating the same program. And we just took our permaculture classes to the Five Boroughs Building on Randall's Island, which is a one-of-a-kind educational site with over 20 examples of living roofs. Because I think living roofs are a very important part of how we biologically retrofit urban landscapes to be more enjoyable for soft, fleshy biological organisms to live in them, right? It's part of how we practice ecological Aikido. And realizing the vines on buildings are a really important part of how we start to soften a hardscape and create a more enjoyable environment for ourselves and make it cooler. And gravity and gravity feeding is something that's part of how systems are already being utilized in order to keep pressure in high-rise buildings. That's what all these water tanks are for is so that you can maintain pressure in a building that starts to get up over four stories. Because uh, in New York City, all of the buildings that are below four stories naturally have pressure from the aqueduct system because it's over 200 feet higher in elevation than the city is. And so the water system for New York was designed in the 1800s to be gravity fed to four stories. So building codes used to say you couldn't go higher than four stories because they could gravity feed and had natural pressure. Today, if the juice goes out and your four stories are lower, you're likely to have water at your tap because of that. So understanding gravity, making use of gravity. In a place like a city, you have a huge amount of vertical. Permaculture in an urban landscape is about utilizing that vertical dimension, making use of it. It's also about bringing plants into the landscape, right? So this is the Ford Foundation building. And what we're looking at here is the importance of green in this urban place and how critical it is to again, reconnecting our biology to more of what it is that our health comes from. Remembering that the best way to heal a damaged ecosystem is to reconnect it to more of itself. So the most important thing we need to do in our cityscapes is bring more biology into our buildings and into our lives as an ally to heal the air. And it turns out there's actually a lot of science behind this. Like which exact plants are the best? We also wanna think about privacy and native plants and vegetation is something that can be used to create an inner space that's kind of an inner sanctum in a place where people are constantly being stimulated and inundated with sound and inputs. Part of what we need on our rooftop gardens is solace and comfort. And what we're doing with things like edge plantings is creating wind breaks, creating sound breaks, creating in effect that dispersal and diffusal of detrimental energy and that focusing of positive optimal energy by using vegetation and container gardening to create a comfortable inner space. In our cities, we wanna think about opportunities for retrofitting. This is one that I'm particularly excited about and so I present to a lot of groups because I wanna get more New Yorkers tapped into this reality, which is there are over 4,000 acres of brownfields in New York on 6,000 parcels. 4,000 acres of something that's just a little bit less toxic than a Superfund site, but toxic enough that no city planner can let any developer do anything on it without significant remediation. That's 4,000 acres on 6,000 parcels in a city that has clearly a lot of high real estate value and a lot of potential for us to optimize off of that. So as we turn a waste into a resource, how would we turn a brownfield into a resource for an urban population. 
Well, it turns out the Trust for Public Lands has done a lot of research on this, who also is somebody who we need to be thankful for for having saved many of the community gardens in New York City. Along with Bette Midler and New York Restoration Project, if it weren't for the two of them stepping in as entities in the late 90s, Giuliani would have axed them all on the auction block. But it was because of Trust for Public Lands coming in, leveraging millions of dollars of funds to buy up that real estate and then put it under land trusts. Land trusts are a commie pinko plot that takes real estate out of the capital added value market and devalues it permanently. That's actually something that's very subversive. And as people who are interested in creating a more collective culture, a healthier future, where future generations have access to land and access to resources, we want to think about land value. And we want to think about protecting our projects and our gardens with legal statuses where they can't have the rug pulled out from under us because some developer can run in and put down dollars and take your land from you. And land trusts did this research then, that was sort of an aside, but the Trust for Public Land did this research into the brownfields and it turns out over 60% of them sit within 500 feet of a major waterway. And what I'm suggesting here is that we should create green strips around the city on the brownfields that are biodiverse native species parks for us to go walk and just enjoy being in a green place in a place that doesn't have enough green. It's not about growing nut trees or fruit trees. That's not the goal because right plant, right place, right? We want to <clears throat> make sure that we plant things that aren't going to cause a toxic exposure event for people in a brownfield. But there is a lot of opportunity to take places like this that are undervalued, devalued because of previous bad actors and poor behavior not being held accountable. And now the public has to pick up the tab for corporate impropriety in our public sphere, which is what the denigration of our land is, right? If you, if you looked at it over and over again, how do super funds happen? How do brownfields happen? How does chronic non-compliance with the Clean Water Act continue to happen? 37% of rivers and streams are considered unfishable and unswimmable according to the EPA in the United States, and over 50% of lakes and ponds right, are considered unfishable and unswimmable. Most of you might not have known that, because for some reason as citizens, we don't look at what the EPA says about this country, and that's not using the research that you have available at your fingertips, right? It's right there. But I can't tell you how many audiences I talk to about What's going on with air quality? What's going on with water quality? You don't know how to research it themselves. Part of what permaculture designers are, are translator organisms. We take obfuscated databases and we translate them into something that you can understand and access and utilize to mitigate your own personal exposure, to moderate what's happening with something that you're not able to quantify. And so what we're doing is we're quantifying it and allocating it, but simply Put, what we're doing is we're looking at DEP, we're looking at Department of Energy, we're looking at EPA databases, and then we're bringing that down to your home and where is the nearest Superfund site? Where is the nearest hazardous waste incinerator? Where is the nearest brownfield? That very, well may, that very well may be why your child has leukemia, why your child has immunodeficiency related diseases, why you're suffering from toxic sensitivity syndrome, right? Because of something that is empirically quantifiably knowable. But for some reason as a culture, we're not research hounds looking into these things. And we all need to be using our intelligence to get the data that's relevant to us. So it's, it's partially about using our minds to be better critical analytical thinkers, being more skeptical. <clears throat> As we think about how can we heal these damaged, debauched, 
corporate pollution legacies, I should say corporate government collusion pollution legacies <laughs> in our landscape, right? Um, this is a great example of a bioremediation floating walkway that John Todd was funded to do in China in a very uh, polluted waterway that people were just dumping sewage and other types of pollution into. And what John Todd did was created a floating walkway that he planted a ton of wetland plants in who are able to digest all of the nutrients of those black water and that gray water to the point to where people can now swim in this and eat fish out of it. And that was all done by the microbiology at the root zone of the plants. So as you think about who's doing the work here, it's not the plants. It's the microbes that live at the root zone of the plants. It turns out that these living systems are able to selectively adapt to their nutrient loads. So they become better at cleaning the pollution that they're receiving because natural selection happens really fast in the microbiological world, right? Meaning that lots of generations go through living and dying in a very short amount of time. This is why pesticides, when you first apply them, they kill 99% of the insect. The second time, they kill 50%. What? They only 50% kill rate the second time? Yeah, because what happens is you morphologically selected for the insects that are resistant to your insecticide. Same thing's happening with constantly lacing animals with antibiotics, right? That's why we have antibiotic resistant strains of avian influenza that cause people to have to kill over 20 million chickens and landfill them in China, right? Because when you constantly introduce a pollutant or a toxin into a natural system, guess what the natural system does? It adapts, responds, and is able to permutate far faster than your insecticide, your fungicide, your herbicide. So, you know, this chemical arsenal is probably somewhat of a backlash reaction to those bed bugs that jumped up in, us in, in the cave. <laughs> we're, probably, we're probably a little bit squeamish about all this biology, which is kind of understandable. But now we're hopefully in a, in maybe the pendulum hopefully is swinging back now. And we're going to start to get a little bit more comfortable with the fact that microbiology is actually part of our health, part of our well-being. And it turns out that this is an example of microbiology working for us. And in fact, if you look at something like an intentional wetland wastewater treatment system or a living machine, which are biological organisms that can digest things like black water and gray water, instead of sending them to an industrial sewage treatment plant that just throws a bunch of chlorine and fluoride into it and then dumps it out into the waterway, supposedly with a low enough bacteria count in it, right? That's a chemical way in which right now we deal with sewage. Remember, pre-1972, there were no sewage treatment plants in the United States. In fact, rivers were catching on fire before we said, hmm, maybe we need some environmental laws in this country. Rivers were catching on fire until 1972. Which means we're talking about from like 1945, post-World War II, that we're looking at really when it ramped up and things got totally nuts in terms of the chemical, nuclear, corporate, government collusion arsenal being a debauchery that was just dumped all over the American landscape, right? Remember I said earlier, 900 atomic bombs is how many have been tested in the United States, according to Department of Defense, 900, right? So our comfort level with just like, just dumping toxic waste on the American people 
1945 to 1972, that was when we said, maybe we need an EPA. Maybe after rivers are catching on fire and we're finding strontium-90 in baby's teeth all over the country, which is what it took to stop nuclear testing, which was actually something that uh, Chem Ag started knocking on the government's door and saying, you know what? We're finding really scary levels of strontium-90 in wheat, and we're thinking the American people might figure this out. So, you know, we have a lot of legacy in this country that generally, as American people, you don't even know about, right? Which is kind of crazy that, you, that we could grow up in a society that is so comfortable with this chemical, corporate, government collusion, and as a population, we don't understand that actually our own genetic integrity, our own air quality, our own health, our own level of suffering is directly a result of this insanity. It's not something that we're just genetically prone to contract cancer. No, that's no, totally bogus. And that mythology is what they've been riding on the backs of for a while. So we have to recognize that actually natural selection, when we utilize it, has way more bang for the buck than when you're using industrial chemical solution sets to solve a problem. So if you say, oh, if I take pollution and I put it into a living system, what happens? But turns out, if the living system can stay alive with your pollution, it adapts and modifies and becomes better at eating it and digesting it or sequestering it. What happens when you dump pollution into a filter on a hazardous waste smokestack? Which it turns out that there's over 110 hazardous waste incinerators in the United States. Which I don't know about you, but scientifically it doesn't make sense to take a solid or a liquid and turn it into a gas if it's toxic. Because like, you know, it's like, well, okay, it's a solid, it's a liquid, and it's toxic. Should we figure out what to do with it in a solid or liquid form? No, let's burn it. Let's burn it. In fact, you know what the government wants to do now? They're building so many chemical weapons that they want to build a chemical weapons incinerator. Sounds like a genius idea. And they want to build one at the Umatilla Proving Ground out in Oregon. They want to build one at the Aberdeen Proving Ground in Maryland. They want to build one down in Louisiana. Because they, they got a lot of chemical weapons. And... If you read The Thread at Home by Seth Schulman, who's an environmental journalist, he'll talk about how probably putting a smokestack on it is better than what they're doing right now. Because it turns out that what they're doing right now at Aberdeen is they're just burning it in open pits, right? To the point to where chain reactions would go off that they would just have to abandon the stockyard for like a couple weeks because it was exploding and dangerous gases were going everywhere. And then they would just come back after the dust settled and put the pieces together. That's why Aberdeen Proving Ground is on the Superfund site list twice, because they toxified it so bad. So maybe putting a smokestack on it is better. But you take that, so no, no, not a single one of those 110 hazardous waste incinerators in the United States has ever been in compliance with the Clean Air Act. So why do we have the Clean Air Act? Right? So why do we have the Clean Water Act? If like no sewage treatment plant has ever been in compliance with it, if New York City has never once been in compliance in it, what worth is it? If as a citizenry, we don't really know about it and get behind it and say, we actually don't think that citizens should have to take corporations to court. We actually think that corporations should have to prove to us that anything they want to put into the public sphere is not going to kill us, which is what they're doing in Europe. See, the, the EU has created what they call the precautionary principle, where they tell corporations and businesses, you want a new business over here? Guess what? If you're Procter & Gamble and you want to sell us a face cream, you better make sure it doesn't have any carcinogens, any teratogens, any mutagens, or any endocrine disruptors. You have to prove that to us before you put it on the public market. That's an intelligent system. 
Our system is a Sisyphean uphill battle where environmental law groups give pro bono work to try to get people like the Salem Nuclear Power Plant in New Jersey to come into compliance with the Endangered Species Act because they were sucking too many sea turtles into their cooling tower. It turns out about 50% of fresh water in the United States is used in industrial cooling processes. Only 1% of the water on the planet's surface is, is good enough for us to drink, but they let over 50% of it in this country be used just to do things like cool down a paper mill or cool down a steel mill or cool down a nuclear power plant. And then they're allowed to release as much tritium as they want to out of their power plant, which is a low-level radioactive isotope, because the EPA has decided, well, it's, it's low-level radioactive. So, you know, there's no limit on tritium. You can just, as much of that needs to come out is fine. We're not going to check what's coming out. So what they did with the Salem nuclear power plant was after five years, first they appealed and took it to a higher court because it's a calculated endeavor by corporations to spin out the energy that a citizen action pro bono environmental law firm has by just doing an appeal. They get to another higher court because who's got the money and who's got the lawyers? The corporations, the Salem nuclear power plant, not the Widener Law School that was doing pro bono legal action against them, right? No, it's a large corporation. So they just spin it out and spin it out. And eventually what happened in that case was EPA changed the number of sea turtles that you're allowed to suck into a cooling tower under the Endangered Species Act so that they would be in compliance. So instead of four, it's now five. And that was acceptable because that's how many they were sucking in. It's like you got to understand the, the general pattern. I don't suggest that you all need to understand all those details. But what I want you to understand is that's a pattern. That's a pattern that shows that the burden of proof needs to fall on corporations and businesses, not on the citizens to show that a needle in a haystack that an epidemiologist could show in a court of law is what your loved one contracted carcinoma from. And right now, that's what you'd have to prove in order to get any sort of monetary remuneration for physical suffering. Is there such a thing? I don't, I don't really think there is. For being genetically marred forever to the point to where you can't have healthy offspring, is there is there a dollar amount that would be worth that? I don't think there is. I really don't. And, and re this is looking at NASA studies that look at plants that can heal us and bringing them back into our landscapes, so that we can start to just at a small level in the city say, let's bring in a daisy. It turns out that this is fantastic at removing benzene and other cancer-causing chemicals. It also can absorb carbon dioxide and gives off oxygen at night. It turns out that plants actually are something that we can't really afford to live without. And which plant in particular actually does make a difference, right? NASA did these studies because NASA was sending people up into space in these super toxic hermetically sealed boxes, which is what I call the passive house. Passive House is a super toxic, hermetically sealed box that pays no attention to being modified, adapted, and designed in a way that makes sense for the local climate, the local geology, the local geography. That's a new type of architecture that's bioregionally suited, not an architecture that's just planted by somebody who wants to sell you products in a package, right? So these shuttles were so toxic that they were sending the astronauts up in that they were all getting sick, like really sick. Just like these buildings they had to tear down in Los Angeles because everybody was getting sick because of toxic building syndrome. Because they were off-gassing so much formaldehyde and so many toxic fumes, they turned out retrofitting it was gonna be too much trouble, so they just tore it down and rebuilt it. 
That's the kind of craziness that you get into when people think it's just normal to create buildings out of toxic materials like chipboard and foam insulation and lots of caulk and spray foam, right? Great, so you've created this hermetically sealed toxic box that's gonna cause you to die of cancer, but you feel like you were responsible ecologically, but you died. So I think you kind of lost that game in that shuffle of cards, right? It's really not a good choice. So you need to be careful with the green tech thing. It's probably better in some ways to have a drafty house and just put on some clothes. It's crazy what people think they need, right? Remember, we evolved around the equatorial rain belt. We are suited to planet Earth. It's actually good for our bodies to physically adapt and respond to our landscapes. And it's good to have buildings to physically adapt and respond to the landscape and say, which direction south? Which direction is that nuclear furnace that's 90% of the solar system rising and setting from? And every building should pay attention to that. Every single building that's built in the Northern Hemisphere should be paying attention to the sun. It's the single biggest stack on planet Earth. And as long as we have an architecture that just pays attention to the street, that's it. Just about the street. There's nothing to do with the fact that the sun rises and sets every day and makes a huge difference in terms of whether you're comfortable, in terms of whether you're happy in the wintertime, or suffering from seasonal depression syndrome, right? Has everything to do with paying attention to where does the sun rise and set and how tuned in are our bodies to the cosmic cycles of astronomy on planet Earth. And realizing that plants are huge allies for our health, for our state of mind, and they actually do physical cleaning of the air. So bringing in edibles, bringing in more vegetation, bringing in things in container gardening that we can actually consume are also a very important part of how we begin to retrofit this landscape, how we begin to heal it and connect ourselves with our biology and our botany. Uh, recognizing that cities, we really want to use the vertical. These are espaliered peach and pear trees that are in a community garden. As a way to preserve your inner space, make use of that thermal mass of the wall and cool the building significantly and get an increased fruit yield. This is what I mean by permaculture is about adapting and modifying the landscape and practicing ecological Aikido, where we're looking at where is the sun, where is this building, and what plant could I put against it that's both gonna give me a yield, make use of that microclimate, and help keep the building cooler. Right, vines on buildings, very important part of how we soften the hardscape. Recognizing that it's something that makes both privacy screens and it's what I call a biofiltration exoskeleton. What I mean here is that your nose, your lungs, your sinus system, as I can feel at this point in the season, are already overtaxed by the pollution load in the city. A biofiltration exoskeleton, what I mean by that is those vines, those trees, that vegetation helps to filter a lot of those pollutants and those particulates from the diesel fumes that are just idling outside of your house or your business. It captures a lot of that and stops how much work your sinuses and your lungs have to be doing. You know, cities are places where people gather that need to be designed in a way that makes sense for large populations and large groups. And they're places where people want to experience conviviality. They want to be together. They want to eat good food, have a good experience with other human beings. And looking at infrastructural adaptations that make sense for urban landscapes and how do we turn waste into resources definitely includes biogas. This is the Newtown Creek sewage treatment plant which is using biogas to generate all of its energy. It is energy self-sufficient. 
And as I mentioned, this is a very important technology when we look at how is Berlin, how is Stockholm becoming more energy self-sufficient? If you go to Sweden, biogas is 25% cheaper at the pump than gasoline is because they're subsidizing it. And that's how we could be cooking and getting rid of this whole hydrofracking debacle. It's simply to say, how about if we use sewage to generate methane to cook with and to power generators? How about if we use passive solar to heat water? How about if we use active solar to generate lighting and power music and electronics? How about if we have rooftop greenhouses that extend our season, enable us to eat greens all year round? How about if we have vertical forests and high-rise buildings that make our buildings more beautiful and functional as ecosystems? How about if we bring plants into our interior living spaces that are particularly good at cleaning up air pollution? And how about if we live in a way that makes sense for the fact that we're in the North Atlantic Coast eco-region and we design an infrastructure of food, fuel, fiber, medicine, and building materials that's adapted to the North Atlantic Coast eco-region. And then we develop an economy of food, fuel, fiber, medicine, and building materials that's adapted to the lower New England, Northern Piedmont eco-region. And then we develop an infrastructure of food, fuel, fiber, shelter, and building materials that makes sense for the high Allegheny Plateau. What I'm suggesting here is not that they'll be economically self-sufficient, but that we'll start to create 1%, 3%, 5% of the fuel, fiber, building materials, medicine that that eco-region needs. And that there's no substitute for old growth forests or mature ecosystems. And then we need to create contiguous riparian buffer corridors for wildlife to come into places that are right now highly urbanized, concretized, and fragmented. And then part of how we create the city in a way that makes us want to be in it and takes back the commons is by vegetating it. These are places that people interact with each other and it addresses what Jane Jacobs talks about as one of the fundamental problems in our cities, which is not having enough eyes on the street, not having enough people who know each other so they don't want to do harm to people because they don't know them. Part of how we start to experience empathy is simply by interacting. And when we have trees and steps that we want to hang out on, we suddenly start to know our neighbors and get to have more of a sense of a neighborhood. But when it's architecture with no vegetation, it's not human friendly and it's not conducive to community building. Living machines, this is one on the waste facility as you're coming into Vermont from New Hampshire. This is a sewage treatment plant that is processing black water and gray water with an array of vegetation and leaving absolutely no nutrient load when it passes out of the building and then can be used to fertilize trees. We need to bring in these inner plantings to clean up the air in our subway tunnels. We need vegetation in here because we have 24-7 fluorescent lighting. There's no reason it can't be full spectrum and starting to grow some of that Tracania, Janet Craig, Boston fern, these plants that we know can clean up formaldehyde, benzene, dibenzofurans. Bringing water back, daylighting water in our city, finding streams where they used to exist, celebrating water. We live in a place that gets 48 to 52 inches of rainfall. In just a quarter inch rain, you have a CSO event in New York City. That's why I'm suggesting that we need more rooftop gardens, trees, and vines on buildings, because that'll stop CSOs in the most economical and ecological way possible. Combined sewer overflows is what is causing 
24 billion gallons of pollution to go into the estuaries around New York City. In a quarter inch rain event, the storm sewers interact with the sewer coming from your building and they overflow into the waterways because the sewage treatment plant can't handle the volume. Just a quarter inch rain. And the sewage treatment plant shunt their entry lines and just send it straight to the Hudson, straight to the East River, to the tune of 24 billion gallons a year, according to the DEP. <clears throat> Rainwater catchment, super important. None existed before 1999 New York City. We also teach a lot about that in our classes because we think it's a really important solution set. If you want to look up more about existing ones in the city and visit them, Grow NYC. Check out that organization. Check out their rainwater harvesting. And so how do we unlock our inner cosmic energy in the landscape? It's both through meditation, introspection, and contemplation, and that stellar wisdom in the silica molecule in our thumbnail that predates the history of the Earth itself. And it's about remembering our ancestors and remembering that we're on a planet that is traveling 65,000 miles per hour around the sun that is spinning a thousand miles per hour at the equator, that we evolved around the equatorial rain belt from apes seven million years ago. And we are well suited to this planet. We do belong here and we have a responsibility to behave in ways that take a direction and turn it to something that is more in tune with evolution and biology. And to realize that this is a very dynamic <laughs> circumstance that has an incredible amount of energy and ability for us to optimize off of that energy and synthesize it and integrate it into our consciousness and into our lives. We're in a universe that is a very broad, expansive context that has billions of years of collective wisdom that is literally innate in the physical fabric of our being. I like to say that we are walking complex, ecological, biochemical, electromagnetic organisms with a myriad of allies waiting to be recognized and honored.